May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to jump right into God's holy word and we're going to be walking through the psalm that we read just a little bit while a little bit earlier. It's Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps then you can go ahead and get those open or uh, if you want and you don't have a Bible you can usually find one at the end of the pew or you can look it up on pages 6 through 8 in your bulletin this morning. Today's psalm Psalm 73 is a psalm about a perspective change and about an inner struggle against an outside or external perception. In it, a psalmist by the name of Asaph, who lived at the time of King David and King Solomon, writes about the spiritual struggle that he had on the inside as he looked outward at the lives of others around him. And I'm going to skip over verses 1 and 2 for now and start with the second half of verse 3. And as I read them, let's think and list what Asaph sees. And I'm going to read from the translation that we used in our uh, prayer book. I do also see the ungodly in such prosperity. For they are in no peril of death, but are lusty and strong. They come in no fortune like other folk, neither are they plagued like other men. And then I'm going to jump down to uh, verse 12. Lo, these are the ungodly, these prosper in the world, and these have riches in possession. So that's seven different things that Asaph notices about the ungodly. They're totally blessed in Asaph's mind. The word for prosperity in verse 3 is actually shalom, meaning peace. Their lives were such that Asaph saw them not having any struggles. They were fulfilled, tranquil, and complete. Now, there's something to realize here, though. There couldn't be any way that these ungodly people whom Asaph notices were completely without problems. Since the day that sin entered the world, everyone has problems at one point or another, whether they be faithful and devout people or whether they be the worst heathen. That's just the nature of sin and the curse in the world. There will be good days, there will be bad days. Good things will happen and bad things will happen. But Asaph makes it sound like they don't have any problems at all. Asaph's slighted perception is speaking here. Asaph is seeing things in absolutes, just like we tend to do in negative situations. For example, when we're distressed or when we're angry about something, we tend to use words like never, or we tend to use words like always. Husbands and wives, when they bicker and argue, tend to do this. Well, you never do this for me. Well, you always fail to follow through with what you said you were going to do. Children of it are guilty with their parents. And truthfully, parents are guilty of it with their children. Well, you always say no. You never let me. Is something we hear from our children all the time. All we see is the negative side of things. Without paying any attention to the other side of the coin. And suddenly we get tunnel vision. 
And we focus on that which irks us, right? We do it with our jobs. We do it with our spouses. We do it with our children. We do it with health issues. We do it with God. And when we get that that tunnel vision, it seems to outshine everything else to the point that we're often blinded from seeing reality. And that's what Asaph did. He saw them as though they were completely blessed and completely carefree. And on top of it, such blessing was undeserved. Let's look at verses 6 to 8. In the beginning verses which we read, 3 to 5, Asaph sees how the people are blessed. And of course, as Asaph is a God-fearing individual, he attributes such blessing to God. But in this section, Asaph sees what the people do, and it's inconsistent for Asaph, because they shouldn't be blessed by God. And as I read it, let's note the main character traits and the behaviors that Asaph notices. And this is verses 6 through 8. And this is the cause that they are so holden with pride. That's one. And cruelty covered them as a garment. That's two. Their eyes swell with fatness, and they do even what they lust. And this means that they already have so much, but they go and they grab and do whatever it is that their lustful eyes see, sort of like King David did with with, uh, the naked Bathsheba. So that's three. They corrupt others. That's four. And they speak of wicked blasphemy. That's five. Their talking is against the Most High. And that's six. And on top of all that, on top of how they treat everyone else around them, there is this attitude toward God. Verse 8 said that their talking was against the Most High. But let's see that fleshed out in verse 11. Take a look at that. Tush, say they... How should God perceive it? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The New International Version translates it this way, which gives us a little better understanding. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? Their thoughts are as though God has no power over them. That somehow God is ignorant of their lives. And that they somehow skirted around God and God's authority in their lives. To make this statement means that they understood God's claim on them, but that they were so proud to think that they could see themselves above that claim and that there was nothing that God could do about it. They were smarter than the ways and knowledge of God. So that's what Asaph sees. That's what we see. That's what every godly person sees in the ungodly. I mean, how could God allow such sinful people, such blasphemers, to have such blessing? Isn't God supposed to bring swift justice? Why wouldn't God just cause one of those blockbuster movie type of scenes and destroy them all? But no, God allows these ungodly blasphemers who abuse God's people and who abuse God himself to prosper. And well, it just plain angers Asaph. Verse 3 says, what is at the heart of the matter? Go back up to verse 3 for a second. Our translation says, I was grieved at the wicked. The word really means I was envious. I was jealous 
of the wicked. He burned inside because of the wicked. In his anger and in his frustration, Asaph's real burden is this. What about me? What do I get? Why do they get everything while I'm stuck struggling and trying to make ends meet with everything? In many respects, Asaph is much like the older son in the famous parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. Well, actually, here it is our gospel lesson in about two months, so I'm not going to spend too much time on it here. But you may remember that the prodigal or the wasteful son took his father's inheritance and he went and he blew it all on frivolous and sinful spending. Most of you know that Liz and I went away last weekend to Las Vegas for a mini vacation weekend. And after some of what we saw walking around the Las Vegas Strip, I think that the prodigal son went to Las Vegas. <laughs> Ladies, partying, drunkenness, buying everything for his friends, doing everything God says not to do. That's Las Vegas. <laughs> or that's what this son did. And we also know from that parable that Jesus says that there is this second son, the older son. He's the faithful son. He stayed home. He took care of the father's business. He was faithful to the father. He made sure everything ran well. He was faithful to God. And when the prodigal son finally loses everything, and he comes to his senses, the older son becomes enraged because the father forgives him and welcomes that son home again. And we tend to always look at it from the perspective of the father and the prodigal. And how gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving that the Father is. Which is a wonderful picture of God embracing repentant sinners. But from the perspective of the older brother, this was an unfair thing. It was not right that the son should get away scot-free in this. The prodigal should at least be punished. The older brother should at least get something more. Something better than his stupid younger brother. Well, that's... Asaph. Why does God bless those who don't love him? Why does God give riches to those who don't even recognize God as the source of it all? Why does God allow the heathens and the hedonistic to have a seemingly carefree life? And what really Asaph means is why am I not getting more from God than them? What Asaph really means is, why isn't God exalting me more than he's exalting them? After all, Asaph was a faithful worship leader, a faithful prophet. And that's such our nature. I mean, that's what I love about this psalm. Because everything Asaph says in this psalm is something to which I can relate. There isn't a single theme in this psalm that I haven't struggled with at some point or another including the questioning of God's blessings on other people and the seemingly overlooking of God when it comes to me and my situation. I mean, who here hasn't burned inside with some sort of envy and jealousy? Who here hasn't said with me, I deserve more from God than some of these other people do? That ugly envy and jealousy is a tough thing to deal with. As Matthew Henry, a well-known commentator, wrote, the psalmist was strongly tempted to envy the prosperity of the wicked, a common temptation which has tried the grace of many saints. 
And all of this causes Asaph to say, in verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And again in verse 13, I have cleansed my heart in vain. And again in verse 15, I had almost said, even as they. In other words, Asaph almost gave up hope. His perception of the external and the way that it played out in his mind was such that it caused an internal spiritual collapse. Seeing what happened to others and being envious of what they received almost brought him to the point of saying, what's the sense, God? Perhaps even saying, well, maybe I'll just join them. Or even more dire of saying, maybe God doesn't really care. Or maybe God doesn't really know. Or maybe God isn't who I thought God was supposed to be. Thankfully, Aesop doesn't go there. His feet almost slipped, he said. He almost stumbled. But he didn't. Instead, he's brought back to a proper understanding and a proper perspective. So let's jump to verse 17. What is it that changes? What is it that changes Asaph's perspective and his story here? Until I went in to the sanctuary of God. Asaph goes to the house of God. Asaph goes to worship. And in doing so, he engages in the, in the sacrifices of the temple. And he participates in the singing of the, the praises of God with the people of God. And he hears anew the reading of God's holy word and God's law. And he engages with the fellowship of the faithful. And through all of this, Asaph is refocused on who God is, what God has done, and what God will do. Asaph is brought back to an understanding of God's eternal purpose and promise. And not on his own envious heart. From what he had perceived. Asaph had to be refocused on to God and not on other men. Asaph had to be refocused on the eternal and non-tangible blessings and rewards of being in relationship with God and his people. And how the ungodly, though they may be blessed with riches in this world, do not have such an eternal richness. And I love how Asaph describes himself after all of this is done. When he's refocused, when he's got his perspective straight again. Look at how he describes it all in verse 22. So foolish was I and ignorant, even as it were a beast before thee. Let me read another translation for you. I was ignorant and lacked insight. I was as senseless as an animal before you. I was as senseless as an animal before you. We can't always trust what our eyes see. We can't always give in to what our situations speak to our hearts, especially when it's driven by our own envying and our own jealousies and our own emotions. The only thing that we can trust and that centers and provides proper perspective is that which we find from God through our worship and fellowship with Him. So many times people, including us even as the faithful, want to run the other way when they're struggling like Asaph was. When things aren't going well, we usually don't want to be in God's house worshiping. When we're discouraged, we usually don't want to be in God's house worshiping. When we're bitter with God and mad at him for whatever reason, we usually don't want to be in God's house worshiping. 
But it's precisely in those times that we need to be in the worship of God and with God's people. Worship of God recenters us. Worship of God reminds us again of who God is. Worship reminds us again of God's love for us. Worship of God reminds us again of what we so often lose focus of in the day to day. Worship isn't just about leaving happy for a moment on Sunday morning. I mean, you should leave happy and uplifted, without a doubt. But worship is not simply about getting you to be happy. Worship is about filling you. Filling you with the fullness of God. With the fullness of God's love. And we need that. We need that break to be filled with God. And when we take that break, we can say with Asaph the final words and thought of this psalm, the words with which I close today. It is good for me to hold me fast by God, to put my trust in the Lord God, and to speak of all his works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.